Welcome to Run This World. My name is Nicole DeBoon. I'm a former pro athlete turned entrepreneur. Each week, I'll bring you insights and inspiration from some of the world's greatest visionaries who will help you run your world in ways that you didn't even realize were possible. Thank you for spending some time with me today. Now let's get this workout started. Hey everyone, it is officially 2020. It's on. It's a new year. It's a fresh start. Some people don't buy into that. I totally do. And in fact, I'm feeling incredibly productive because dun, 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 I changed the intro. It's no longer a 5K. <laughs> we can let every episode go as long as it needs to go. Um, and today, oh my gosh, you are in for such a good one. What a great way to start the new year with Mr. Ian Powell. But before we get to him, a um, couple cool things going on. So through Skirt Sports, we have this really cool community group, a Facebook group called the Women Who Move Challenge. I think I'm going to change the name to just Women Who Move um, and in January, we are doing this really cool self-introspection exercise, let's call it, where you are going to take the month to think through all the things in your life that bring you joy, that help you feel alive. And you're going to work through these different things and go through a few exercises and you're going to end the month with a word or a mantra that's going to help you dictate your year or at least the next phase of your life or the next few months. And, uh, and if you're feeling so inclined, you may even make some goals that align with that new word or mantra. Just a cool thing to do. In fact, I recommend doing this kind of exercise every 6 to 12 months because whatever you think you're all about changes from one year to the next. So it's really important for us to take the time to tap into our own selves. That's part of why you do things like listen to awesome podcasts <laughs> like, like this one, because you're constantly looking for ways to expand yourself. But how often do you take the things you learn and listen to and really apply them to yourself? So if you're interested in getting in on the action, go over to Facebook and just search the the Women Who Move Challenge Group and uh, request to join will get you in there. And you can be public with your um, posts or you can just kind of keep it all to yourself and be a little bit of a, a voyeur. <laughs> That's okay too sometimes. Um, another cool thing going on. So Skirt Sports is coming out of this like crazy crazy situation that we were in the last half of last year. We have officially survived into 2020 and we are running our last big, huge, massive sale for a while. Um, the sale will end on January 9th. From the 7th through the 9th, we are offering free shipping with a code. The code is get it. I think that's the code. <laughs> If it's not the code, just ping me or uh, sign up for Skirt Sports emails because we'll be emailing you every day, the 7th, 8th, the 9th, to remind you that it's the last three days to get absolutely insane deals. We do not sell our products 
for cost or under cost. And that is what you are going to find these next few days because we are still trying to clear out as much inventory as we can from the situation we were put into last year. So take advantage of it. There is no harm in doing so. Hey, it'll help us and it'll help you feel great as you go into the new year. So let's do it. Let's officially kick off 2020 by introducing today's amazing guest, Ian Powell. Uh, Ian is the founder of a company called Kilter Grips. They make the handholds that you see at any climbing gym. They make those. (laughs) And I met Ian because we, Skirt Sports, were subletting our big, huge warehouse space in Boulder when we had an issue with our business four years ago. So you can see time tends to repeat itself. Um, And it was interesting. We were looking for new tenants. Um, We had over four years on our lease. Uh, What's really funny is it's only been about a week since we are finally no longer landlords. But uh, Ian came in and checked it out. And I could just tell there was something about him that really stood out. And I wondered, what what does this guy really do? They ended up being our tenants. Um, and we've been working with them for many years. And what's really funny is I'd never been over to the space, but it turns out they had built cool climbing walls and they're doing all kinds of cool stuff out of there. But anyway, that day four years ago, I went home and I Googled him. And what I found was this insane article in a publication called Rock and Ice. And it detailed basically um, the, the life of what you may understand after you listen to this episode, a sort of climbing hold savant that had gone awry. Um, see, Ian, as brilliant as he is, has and will always battle a self-destructive streak that for about a decade of his life had him in the throes of drug abuse and then prison, which you're going to hear all about in just a minute. And what's crazy is he's clearly a very intelligent guy. What's really funny is as I was getting the episode ready, I reached out to him, we were chatting a bit, and he's like, hey, can you just make sure people know that I listen to a lot more podcasts than just the ones we mentioned? Um, Because I don't want everyone to think I'm an idiot. I will guarantee that, yeah, he's done some really idiotic things, um, but the last thing Ian Powell is, is an idiot. In fact, he may just be a little too brilliant, um, which led to his almost demise. So I think today's conversation is deep. It's so interesting. It's, you'll be spellbound. It's a long episode. So get ready. Maybe you can listen to it during your marathon training. Um, But the truths that come out of his incredible story can, can really resonate with anyone. They definitely resonated with me. I hope you enjoy today. It's it's truly a blessing to have Ian on the show. Cool. So what podcast do you listen to? Um gosh. Uh I, 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 I mean you start with uh you know Terry Gross and and uh um 
Radio Lab, of course, right? You start there, and then. Uh, but uh, look, I'll even listen. I have a weak spot for Adam Carolla, who's way more conservative than I am, but he's an outspoken atheist, and I got, <laughs> I got hooked into him in Love Line in the '90s, and I'll still listen to his show, and I'm just like, oh, dude, you can't say that. That's not that cool. <laughs> so um, that's that's probably the extent of my right wing weakness. That's but, uh, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's or, people. Or, or Joe Rogan. I, oh, yeah. He's, oh, God, he's... Uh, you just can't a, not listen, though. I, yeah, sometimes. I mean, but I heard... <laughs> who did I hear? I heard... I listened to him and somebody else the other day, and I swear I lost some IQ points over the hour. <laughs> so God, great. God bless him. But um, It's yeah. really funny. I actually knew I wanted to start a podcast before I ever listened to a podcast. Oh, yeah, great. Wow. I was just okay. like, this is the medium for me. Right. Like, I need to talk to people. Sure. And, and, yeah. and have some time. Yeah, have... and, and we don't need to have a video on us. Yeah, we can. Yeah, sure, I sure, don't know. We'll take. Sure. Maybe we'll do an outtake yeah, today. Sure, sure. <laughs> we'll see yeah, what happens. I'm fine too. Um, um, oh, that's so funny. Yeah, no, podcasts are. It, that's great. God bless them. Um, especially like for me because um, you know my work, my part of the company is old fashioned hand carving these shapes. I'm just standing in a studio like whittling wood. Basically, I mean it's foam, but <laughs> so and um, it's not that intellectually challenging at this point you know so like yeah, podcasts are a good thing to do while i'm doing it i mean this is okay we get, we just need to dig right in because sure. yeah. you you go yeah they're wood no they're not wood they're foam like you are one of the innovators in this industry and it's this like no one thinks about the hold no, like why why would you? there's you, lumps of colored plastic yeah you go you to know? a gym and you're like i'm gonna climb that wall yeah yeah well there's like a whole art form behind the way you climb the wall right yeah, sure it, well sh so i think shaping holds i think route setting for indoor climbing for artificial climbing is really interesting and i think shaping the holds i think both things are um un they're unusual pursuits so so these things are really sculptural but it's we're also designing sports equipment um and the route setters sit at the crossroads route setters they bring indoor climbing or they bring outdoor climbing indoors they interpret climbing they create climbing they're they're the connection between the customers and the climbing gyms you know the, the climbers and the the industry everyone on on our side like the route setters are this really interesting i, I just think fascinating kind of crossroads in an unusual position in a in an industry a, a sports industry you know? so like Explain this. So are route setters generally people who are climbers? It's like it's in their soul and, they, and they've and they climbed all kinds of things, indoor, outdoor, whatever. Sure. And then they're like, oh, I want to bring that experience to more people. Yeah. And um, I mean, in, it, it, this happens with shaping too. Uh, passion and interest and skill level in climbing, you know, uh, for the, there may be an inverse relationship between the talent of the rock climber, you know, the super powerful great athlete and their ability to create that there, there might be a, a more than not an inverse relationship to that uh so oh, interesting uh, right so just talent and interest isn't enough but um uh you know or just being interested in climbing you you really have to i mean it's a lot of work the shaping is like i said it's just standing there and being and uh kind of in a, in a sculptural studio route setting is really physical i've always thought it must be pretty similar I don't know much about skiing and snowboarding. I, I, I boarded a little bit in the 90s, and that's a blast. But I've always assumed the skiers who lay the lines down a mountain or, or, or people who are laying out um, a skate, you know, uh, uh, skateboard courses, 
skate parks. Um, it, that's all pretty similar. That's very, I mean, where the route setters are the people laying out the sport, the trails for people. So, um, and it, it, well, at, but we were talking before, there's kind of a crisis in this country and that there's not among our crisis in our little sport. <laughs> it's not a serious crisis, but in our <laughs> the world's little, going to end. Yeah, yeah. Not enough route setters. Yeah, forgive me for being dramatic. The, um, <laughs> In the sport of indoor climbing around the world and in America, um, we don't have enough route setters and not enough people. So we need a school um, to kind of teach these skills. And it is, it's not only hard work hauling these lumps of plastic up the wall and then, and then you know, cranking them down, um, but a lot of people are still hanging off of ropes when they're doing it. So it's high work. It's, you know, I mean, anything off the ground like that's dangerous. Oh, um, yeah. So are you a route setter? Uh, it's been a long time since I've done it for a paycheck. Um, everybody, actually everybody at our company is a route setter, uh, has been, or currently is, you know, e- even our accountant Griffin, um, the, everyone's been a route setter. So I'm, I'm proud of that because it, that's, that's really using, I mean, that, that, that's who uses our product. We, I, I guess we're a funny company in that we sell, we don't really sell to the people climbing in the gym. We sell to the gym owners and the route setting teams and, and then they turn around and use them for the customers. So we have yeah. sort of two levels of customers. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about this company. Mm-hmm. Okay, we haven't even mentioned the name. Oh, sure. But it, it, what's really funny is the way we connected, which was about four years ago. Yeah, right. Because <laughs> our our leases <laughs> just about up. Yes, we we sublease from you. Yeah. Oh my. Oh, and you don't even know. Crazy. But the new our new landlord, our oh, old no. old guy was great. This new guy. Wait, everyone. weren't we your landlord? I thought well, we were well, your landlord. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Well, since well, the property people of, of like Tom. <laughs> right, right. Tom right, was Tom. great. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. This new guy, Uh-oh. not great. Oh no! It's oh. oh are you getting out at the right pain. time? Are you guys done we, after? We might be. Okay. He's, it's one of these things. I'm just like, oh, forget this. They're still giving us a good rate, though. So. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So, so what happened is about gosh, like four years ago yeah. or so, um, Skirt Sports went through this like major business shift. Yeah. And we changed all kinds of things and we decided we had to shut down our old warehouse and offices. And you, so you came into town with a retail location and your offices are at that, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah so great. that's how well, that's a shift we made. And sure. we moved all our inventory that's in California. Oh, so oh, oh, that, that's where all the, okay. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I mean, we have a little bit at the store, sure, but, right. um, so, so the funny thing is then we had the space that had bit gotten bigger over time right. we were knocked down walls. So we had to like resurrect the walls sure. and find tenants to move into them. And, um, I remember meeting you guys the first sure. time you were looking and I was like, Oh my God, how cool. We're going to get another sporty company in here. Yeah. I, 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 I've often told people like if, only company I could think of that's even more boulderific than us as a rock climbing hold company are you guys, <laughs> right? Totally. Like, like, yeah. yeah. No, you're right. I mean, we're at the epicenter of these yeah. really cool sports and things that have become part of who we are. The funny thing is, like, we've been landlords over there for four years, sure. and you guys have been the ideal tenants. Oh, that's nice. That's good. I'll tell yeah. Jackie. Though <laughs> I have, hear this. I have zero idea what you've done in there. Because I've never been back. <laughs> well, you, I mean, one thing, you've seen my speaker stacks, right? I have like seven or eight foot tall speakers. <laughs> I haven't even seen them. <laughs> yeah, my, my personally, my sobriety is linked to a certain amount of loud, a certain quota of music that comes out of 18 inch subwoofers and I oh my gosh. loud music. Uh, so you need it to like tap into yeah, something that yeah, you used to get from yeah, using right. and doing yeah, and drinking? Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. I think so. I mean, it's lifting weights, uh, 
climbing, you know, some kind of sport. And yeah. so uh, if you also, if in your private weightlifting studio, you have really loud music, that works pretty well for me. So oh I get, my gosh. I so get, wait, is, are you using the space as your private weightlifting studio? Oh yeah, yeah, sometimes. <laughs> you are? Yeah, oh, the that's back room. so cool. Yeah, well, no, we have two climbing walls in the back because we branched out into these small climbing walls and not just the climbing holes and so we have a couple of examples in the back and yeah um and so even though there's that tiny space in the back we've actually had most of the strongest boulders a good amount of the strongest boulders in the world have visited us and climbed in the back with us oh my gosh Um, oddly our accountant griff is on any given day, one of the top five boulders in the world, but he refuses sponsorship. He doesn't do videos like that. And so he's famous. He's your accountant? Yeah. 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 And our junior partner, really, he's, he's a part owner with Jackie and I now. He's great. He's an angel. He's brilliant. Um, but he also, and he's a gorgeous, you know, 20 something kid. <laughs> and uh, he also happens to be like, he's famous among the mo- the famous climbers. They want to come and meet Griff because he's a legend. They don't care about you. No, cool. God, no. no. <laughs> No, he's so an awesome. absolute legend. He's a beast. So, oh my Griff, gosh, how does that feel to watch that like talent? I don't know. Like, are you just like good for you not taking it to you know do that or or, or like what what is there a part yeah, of you yeah. that wants to push him to like go make some money at this? Go be the best. Go if there was if there was money, <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah, that's I mean, that's a problem. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think um, uh, uh, the soloist Honold. I don't, all of us know Alex a little bit, have met him, or we have friends of friends. None of us at Kilter are, are well connected with him, know him well. But I have heard that he uh, has made some decent money at this point. And so maybe Honold is the only rock climber to have, you know, made six figures or seven figures or something. I'm not even sure that's true. Climbing's still so small. It's still so tiny. It's, yeah. It is a tiny sport. It's what's funny about um, Alex is it when you watch the movie and he talks to a bunch of kids and they're like, "You millionaire, you make a lot of money." He's right. like, "I make a living, maybe about the same as a decent dentist." Right? You know? Sure. <laughs> well, I don't know. There's some dentists have some it's, nice I houses. know. Yeah, I was yeah, like, yeah. "Hey, well, that's pretty good." But um, but no, I get it. Like, yeah, you know, we're, I we're I did, tiny. A, and I did a sport too that didn't. It wasn't like. You'd think if you win the Ironman, yeah, right? you're gonna win millions, and it's yeah, yeah. the prize purse is a hundred thousand. It's a lot, yeah, sure. well, but it's it's, a, it's sure, you sure. know that's your whole year, right? So well, it's, and and uh, boy, there's so much to talk about. I, I know. What, what, go, yeah. One of the things I've, I've laughed about is I, I don't I don't actually know because I don't track your sports, but. Aren't you and your husband legends in your sports? <laughs> okay. Aren't you guys like big deals? Here's what's really funny. Like right behind me, Tim yeah. won an award called Legend. Oh, great. See? <laughs> right. So he's a legend. <laughs> so boulders boulders like that? Yeah, I mean they're just Like I said, our yeah. our junior our, our junior partner at this goofy little company is one of the strongest boulders Gosh. in the world. I used to Amazing. live with a, with Will Gad, who has a bunch. I think oh, Will yeah. still has the record on the on parasailing oh, distance records gosh. around the world. Amazing. I live with a guy who had first descents, and I never even I moved in with these guys in the nineties. I didn't even know this stuff. And one day they're like, "Oh yeah, I've, yeah, I got the world record parasailing thing." It boulders like that. I mean, I so always I think, think like if you could just stick like a flag on anybody who's been at, like the top achiever in the sure. world and what sure. they do, bol- you'd see all these flags walking they're, around right, on Pearl yeah, yeah. Street. Yeah, yeah, isn't that yeah, funny? Yeah. Well, you'd have one of them too, because you are you are uh, definitely a top achiever and overachiever in um in, in, in what you've in one been tiny called yeah to, the tiniest yeah. corner of the world yeah sure but it's called to you you know I mean sure. and yeah, and yeah. this is where our passions are so 
if you denied that, you'd probably still be yeah, doing oh, I, some of the I crap did. you were doing. Yeah, I did. Those it didn't years. work out. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, let's talk. So your company is called Kilter. Yep. Kilter Grips. Yeah, we, yeah. We always call it Kilter. I think officially it's Kilter Grips. Yep. Kiltergrips.com, yeah. Kiltergrips.com. I yeah, think. Yeah, yeah. Um, and follow them too, by the way, because you're going to see all kinds of cool stuff on your Instagram trying, and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. We grow slowly. So let's talk about how you how you came to start this company and what you're doing today. So I think sure. we have to kind of back into that, though. Um, well, it, I, yeah, I mean, like I said, there's so much to talk about. One of the things I was thinking about when we were talking about Griff, you know, we don't encourage Griff to go do other stuff because he's happy. He he, uh, Griff did one of the hardest climbs in the world in the park last summer. And he did it in a style. There's a certain kind of style. If, when you climb, you can do, use something called knee bars where you kind of use your knees a little bit. So Griff was, kind of did this thing without using his knees and sort of freaked out. You know, a lot of people are like, oh my, no one else could do it like that. So anyway, Griff did this big deal, little goofy rock climb, but a big deal among powerful rock climbers. And then he comes back and somebody asked him that week if he was more excited about this ascent or the new spreadsheet. And he's, he's like, no contest of the new spreadsheet. <laughs> So that you know, he's that he's that kid. He's happy. He, he's totally happy. He um, yeah. So like, how do you know how do how do we get there to that place of like just happiness that allows us no, to no? I don't. Can I? I am not about to lay out a path to happiness. I barely scrape by with content. I actually think it's not the designer's job to be happy. Mm. I actually think. I, I think if you want to be a designer, I think you're sort of constantly a little bit uncomfortable. You get moments of happiness where you're like, okay, that's a beautiful design. I'm happy with that. But that that's 24 hours later, that's gone. And you gotta, you know, you're annoyed that you're not doing the next version. Right. Um, you know, I, I do think in, as athletes in general, mm. you know, our goal is to find that comfortable place in the discomfort. Yes, That's, absolutely. You have to. You have sure. to be able to get there in order to achieve what you want physically, right? Yeah. And um, and so I totally understand that and transcends out of sport. There's a lot of things we can take from sport into business too. Uh, I mean, that's that that's the the best part about sports is just what it teaches. I mean, I can't imagine life without being a, a climber or what I would have learned what I've learned from being a climber. Um, I, so so starting the sport, I, I think it's a really classic story that, of course, I mean, I did some World Cups basically because they'd let anybody go do World Cups in the early 90s. I you know, tried to compete on national level. I wanted to stand on a podium. I would have sold my soul like any young athlete to win. You know, I just couldn't. I couldn't keep my fingers healthy. I was a little bit heavy. I had a terrible self-destructive attitude. I was just a mess, and I was just not going to win a competition. So... I stayed connected to the sport by by starting to shape these these climbing holds and then um well can I ask yeah, you yeah. like how where where were you living how old were you around uh, this time uh, Boulder so I moved to Boulder uh grew, grew up in Texas Waco Texas WACO there's a very famous HUECO Texas by El Paso for oh, climbers yeah, I saw that this was not that this was WACO Texas I thought they were like spelling the other Texas wrong yeah no <laughs> right right yeah yeah no no it's like 10 hours away so okay, I, I grew okay. up in the Bible Belt as a staunch atheist and an artist and uh, so as soon as I could get out of there I did and uh who who uh how did how did that part of you get shaped i mean was it parental influence or your peers or yeah i'm probably I, uh, before that i grew up in a uh kind of an artistic family in atlanta in the 70s born in 71 and raised in atlanta 
um, but a uh, dramatically uh, dysfunctional family. So a dad, alcoholic dad, and then he committed suicide in 1982. When I was 11, so we moved out of Atlanta, went to Waco to kind of restart, just me and my mom. Um, and I, and she, she's great. We didn't always get along. I think I was, I was a pretty big handful. Um, and I just, just raised in an artistic left wing environment. And, uh, you know, by the time you're 11 and your dad offs himself, you, it's a pretty good chance you're going to take a break from religion, you know, like, oh, I'm good. Wow. Thanks. That's uh, a, that's a big pill to swallow. Here. Yeah. Like I, I, well, it's, uh, it, you know, it's just my life as it, as we get used to our lives, but yeah, it, it sounds a bit dark, I'm sure. Well, for sure. And I mean, was he, um, you know, usually people have signs that they're unstable before they well i have amazing stories i have an amazing story of a high-speed chase through the outskirts of atlanta with me reloading the gun so we can shoot the tires out of the car in front of us as yeah i grew up in an interesting environment oh my god (laughs) are you do you have siblings nope oh my gosh so your dad was he um manic or did he have yeah at least i mean you know I mean, for me personally, it's got to be a theme of my life and that, uh, you know, without a dad, I used to joke that I'd make a father figure out of the postman if he stayed around on the porch long wow. enough. You know? So you're just kind of looking for that that play, that's, that part of your life. So unfortunately, when you're 11 and a parent goes, you don't really get to know them enough. You don't yeah. get to know them as much of an adult. So yeah. I know he was quite beloved. Um, I think it's an interesting statement of someone who's bipolar that somebody can be such a maniac and people just absolutely love the guy. So he must have been uh, pretty great when he was on. You know? Wow. And so you um, you got to experience when he was on and when he was off? Yeah. 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 We got to see all of it. I mean, like I said, that's no, it's not a lot of people who are in a high-speed shootout car chase when they're oh 10 years old. God. I grew up kind of half, half in a bar, you know. Um, and And look, I inherited some chemistry for sure and i and i've always thought that i inherited sort of the uh behavioral keys to unlock the medicine chest you know to unlock the the chemical chest in my head so what does that mean uh i I mean i I just undoubtedly inherited um uh, would grew up with an example of some pretty unstable behavior and so obviously i'm 48 and it's my it's up to me to take responsibility of course for my behaviors but uh you know i just had a i did not have a a very stable example mm-hmm. uh, environment yeah. to grow up in so it, it took a long time but i think i mean i'm still not completely stable i still fight with a, a a pretty light medium dose of bipolar you know people have it a lot worse than me for sure yeah. um but uh you know i shut down and can't function for I'm in bed for three, three, four days at a time, once a month or something, you know, wow. so it's still a mess, but it's manageable for sure. Manageable with, yeah. with Jackie, my partner and with, um, with a business that I, that I feel very responsible for. You have purpose. Yeah. 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 The purpose is a big deal. And was your mom a grounding influence? Was she trying to escape the, the scary behaviors? I mean, it, you know, a, some of it, of course, is it's the seventies, right? Yeah. So everyone, <laughs> I, yeah, it was a mess, right? So she, uh, yeah, she's. Uh, I can't say that I find her grounding for me personally. She's amazing. She, uh, she taught herself. Um, 
she got into real estate management and uh, and commercial property management and taught herself that, got a degree in that, ended up with a management company managing shopping malls and things. This is the amazing thing. In the Kosovo, in, in the when Kosovo was under siege, or, or Sarajevo was under siege in that war, Fran uh, just quit her company, took put it on hiatus, bought a couple of ambulances with some other Catholics and loaded up with food and clothes and drove up the highway into Sarajevo, which was fully shelled. Like, it was super dangerous, but they put on like white UN helmets and went and delivered oh my God. food and clothes. Yeah, yeah, that's my mom. So she's amazing. So she's got uh, this streak of do-gooding, yeah. the, the need she feels, the pull to go help others. Yeah, that she's English. I think the whole English family, honestly. They're wow. all there. I have a cousin who... Uh, the Peace Corps wouldn't let them work. He and his wife, they're both doctors. And the Peace Corps said, yeah, if you work for us, you got to work for two years. And they said, well, we've only got a year. So they just built their own AIDS clinic in Africa. Oh, <laughs> my just, gosh. Like, yeah, okay, we'll do it for a year. We'll just build our own. So, you know, it's a, just an English tradition, an English family like that. Wow. Okay. Which so I'm very, very lucky to be any any kind of part of. Well, this yeah. is like also what's kind of interesting is you've mentioned a couple times like I'm I'm clearly atheist, but then your mom takes you to Waco and she's clearly not atheist. Yeah, I think she's gone in in and out. I think she's back into, <laughs> she's uh, back into in. believing. Yeah, God bless her. My grandmother is, uh, you know, uh, I think she's, if there were women allowed in the Catholic Church, she would be in the organization uh-huh. of the Catholic Church. My grandmother would be in it. Oh my gosh. Okay. So I'm so, starting yeah. to understand this picture of. Uh, yeah, a left wing artistic environment in the 70s in Atlanta, which is a very art- artistic and, and interesting city. And then. And so I think that, and an a, a interesting family. So I think that. Oh, set yeah. The tone. Absolutely. I mean, and, and this tragedy and uprooting and. Mm-hmm. Then you start making your way in Texas. And is that when you got into climbing? Yeah, yes. I just somehow in like 1984 or five, I was 13 or 14, and some friends of friends were repelling. And, it's, and I'm like, what is repelling? You know, as soon as, I mean, the 80s, nobody rock climbed. fun part. So, yeah. So uh, I just discovered, and it, as soon as I figured out people were actually climbing on purpose, uh, it uh, oddly, <laughs> that's a funny way to say it. right. Well, there was a giant boulder in our front yard in Atlanta. I grew up on a boulder on the side of a slab boulder, and I just was obsessed with climbing. And so, but we just didn't know that people did it. So, oh, wow, that it, is so cool. Do you have any photos of that? Uh, somewhere I don't have a I don't, I don't have a the normal relationship to my family maybe that other people do so I don't have a lot of family photos yeah um, I have seen a picture of me stepping off a ladder onto the roof in a diaper oh that's interesting also shooting a rifle in a diaper <laughs> okay under, under that, my under that my might arm be more like the 50s not the <laughs> yeah, 70s yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Oh my it's, gosh. A weird, it's a weird upbringing but <laughs> so, so basically uh, like all kids I climbed like a like a lot of kids I climbed everything I could and then when I figured out it was organized I fell in love and I was an artistic kid I was really really uh known I really bonded with art I mean my self-identity was from drawing and and I just don't know life without that and I was a terrible athlete I, I loved soccer and was awful at it I played for like 10 seasons and I was just terrible and like by high school, they would no way they'd let me on a soccer team. So when I found <laughs> climbing, I was suddenly like, "What?" It clicked. I'm, I'm, me, I'm maybe one of the only, probably one of the only guys to go to a World Cup from my high school in anything. Wow. Um. So, I found climbing, and then finally a sport that I could 
make a part of my life the way you should with a, with whatever, with some sport, it, archery, just anything. I think everybody should find some way to express themselves through their body physically. Uh, you, you and I, and a lot of us are obviously attracted to something maybe a little extra hard or painful or whatever that is. But I think um, it's, um, you know, it's when you truly feel at home. Yeah, sure, whatever that is. Yeah, like you go up to a mountain or a wall and you're like, oh, I know exactly what to do. Yeah. You put do this and that and you put your hand there and you put the chalk on and you sure, do the thing. Sure, it just clicks with you. Yeah, and you know, other people walk up to that and they're like, oh God, I don't know what this is. Well, uh, you know, uh, you, do you know, uh, his his name is Sizneski Mihaly. Uh, he wrote Flow, The Psychology of the Optimal Experience. It's a book that so many people have read, you know, since the, I think he wrote it in 1988 or nine. I think he coined the phrase, uh, the, the term flow. Which is really, it's basically just explaining to Westerners a Zen state, but a but a Zen state through activity, through doing something. So in that book, Flow, he climbers all read it in like 1990 because they actually mentioned us. So he he interviewed tennis players. He interviewed Lynn, I think Lynn Hill, who's one of the most famous American climbers ever and lives in Boulder. I think Lynn is in the book. Um, he interviewed typists, uh, uh, lawyers, dishwashers, everybody, basketball players, everybody. It, for the most part, you could find people that experience flow. Um, and so, which is just that time, you know, in the zone is what people call it. And it's that timeless moment where your, your focus is, it's just the right place where you're not overburdened. Uh, but you're, you're just ahead of maybe where it's easy for you, right? You've got to push yourself. Um, I've always thought you know, there's a famous Michelangelo quote where he said somebody asked him about carving and he said he's just releasing the shapes are already there. He's just taking the bits of stone that are in, in the way. He's just removing those. And he talked about That's finding cool. God in the stone. And I think I think he was just describing the flow state. So that flow state when you guys are running and when we're climbing, it's, yeah. I'm really convinced it's the same feeling. It's just we're just using different alphabets or crafts or whatever you want to say to get well, there. And I think you've found it, you found it in climbing. Mm -hmm. You've found it through your art and through your shaping, which I think is an extension of your art. Well, sure. This Same is the thing. world's longest answer for how did you get started? So, yeah. I mean, if, if you're an artist and you're a rock climber, then uh, shaping the climbing holds made a lot of sense. So yeah, so that's why it's such a click for me personally. Oh, so cool. So so you end up moving. Why would you come to Boulder? Because it was Boulder. Because I wanted to, you know, try to compete and try to train. And it was still and it still is kind of the American center for for climbing as far as kind of the sports industry. So ninety one, I think I moved here. I did some World Cups in Europe and beat around Europe for a season, and then came here. Did you finish high school? Yeah, sort of. I mean, yeah. I, I, I mean, I I went I went in cap and gown to a couple of teachers and said, <laughs> "You you don't want to see me next year, right? Like, let's we have to end this." <laughs> and got special permission. I actually, oh I, my god, I, I had a teacher, <laughs> I had a teacher quit and drive down to Austin, Texas for a summer and lobby the apparently. I've never talked to her about it, but apparently at the <laughs> legend find days, <laughs> she lobbied the school board of Texas to get, to change the law so that I could get a five on a report card and not a, cause you know, you could all, you could get a 50 and that was the bottom. Uh, 
the legend is that on my performance in a class and her hatred of me, which is I'm sure justified, that she changed the way wow. you give grades out in school in Texas. Wow! So you you a struggled very, very bad student. Did you struggle with like relationships with authority figures? Yeah, sure. Do you still? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's, that's why I, you run. That's why you're like you own a company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I guess sure. Well, but so when you moved to Boulder, you know, you had to find some way to support yourself. So oh, a job in a climbing gym, you know, route setter in a climbing gym. So cool. Um, and then so it was called the Boulder Rock Club, and it was one goofy little climbing gym. And and so basically, uh, the changing, you know, route setters. You basically, if if it's your route setting shift on Wednesday morning, you walk in the gym, you find the red route and this blue route and this yellow route. Or this whole section of wall, you take all the holds down, you know, you unbolt them basically, drop them in a bucket, you go wash all the chalk off, and then you reorganize them or you grab new ones from the hold room in the back, and then you go and you put up a new route. And the job is to put up, uh, always it's to put up, you know, easy ones, medium ones, hard ones. We have all this grading system in our sport, of course. Some people, sometimes people hear those numbers, 510 and 512 and whatever. So it's your job to know how hard something is and, and to give the, to set, you know, let's say you set a climb that, that isn't sort of very easy and then suddenly very hard and very easy. That's not a good experience for people. Right. So it's your job to sort of set these evenly paced um, climbing experiences with the gear that we have, which are these lumps of plastic. So that's route setting and that's what I did. And then um, someone who later became a very good friend named Chaz Fisher had a company called uh, Boulder Holds. Which was at the time one of the, oh God, there were so few climbing hold companies in 1991. There was, you know, half a dozen, and they had maybe a hundred shapes of these different shaped holds, or 150 at each company. That was it. So if you if you climbed indoors anywhere you went, coast to coast, these goofy little gyms, you climb on exactly the same shapes over and over and over. Oh and over. boy. Um. So I, <laughs> I sort of thought it's funny looking back. I thought all the shapes of climbing holds had been done. There was nothing interesting left to do. Then I got it in my head. You could build these two part shapes where one, one part of the hold kind of interacted with another part, these kind of puzzle piece things. And those would be revolutionary. And turns out they're way too complicated and people were terrified of them. But I, <laughs> but I went, to, I went to straight, uh, it, it was Boulder holds. And then he just changed the name of the company to straight up right when I got there. So I went to straight up and Chaz basically taught me how to shape normal climbing holes while he let me pursue this way overly complicated design. Um, so he kind of just took you under yeah, his absolutely, wing. Yeah. He, his story is that I just slept in the parking lot. wouldn't leave for a couple of weeks. He gave me a job. <laughs> that, that sounds like me. I don't remember it that way, but that does sound like something I would do. So probably that's what happened. Oh my gosh. You know, I did actually read a little bit about your relationship with him and mm. he ended up being somewhat of a mentor. Sure. Um, I mean, like I said, father figures everywhere. Yeah. Mm. And, so and he's, cool. he's brilliant and, very passionate and hardworking and he's a great guy. Well, and he, he said, quoted that he felt that you were really a person who's very good at learning from their mistakes. <laughs> uh, Maybe we'll get into there. the mistakes no, part of the interview. <laughs> I just apparently have never been afraid to make massive, <laughs> massive mistakes. So, you know? so yeah, like, you know, you're... 
you're young, you're in an exploratory phase of your mm, life, you've come sure. to Boulder, you're on your own, you're like pursuing this thing that's calling to you, clearly like you're kind of obsessed with this idea of creating mm-hmm. holds. And were you, you know, at the same time, were you still climbing at a high level or did it become clear like? I mean, I, I broke my heart on my sport. I mean, oh, just really? absolutely broke my heart. If you... <laughs> I probably am responsible for ruining the afternoon of several thousand rock climbers between the years 1989 <laughs> and 1999 at various pieces of rock around the Western United States. You must explain this. Oh, <laughs> your I, attitude. Oh your... my God. I would have these unbelievably childish temper tantrums and throw my shoes in the river and throw chalk bags and jump up and down and scream. And I have a terrible temper, which is barely controlled now at this age. And oh it was awful. And I owe a significant population oh, of our gosh. sport a huge apology. Oh gosh, if you're listening and and you were a witness, um Oh you might have yeah, like sorry. who was that maniac? <laughs> oh screaming. Yeah, I was just I was just brokenhearted. I just could not climb as well as I wanted to. Never have been able to. I mean I've I've had, you know, three minutes uh, of good climbing over thirty five years or whatever I've been doing it. Um uh, which is fine. I'm fine with it now, basically. But yeah, I, it broke my heart. I mean, you know, which I'm sure so many people, I would imagine most people who listen to your podcast are athletes. And so I'm sure everybody understands just the pain, not the physical pain of a sport. I'm good with that part. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's the, it's, hard. it's the heartbreak of just yeah. not achieving what you want to achieve. And, so, and invariably, hmm. even if you do become the best in the world, you want to be the best again. And you might be, oh, sure. but then you want to be the best again. And so at some point, you you won't be again. Yeah, There is heartbreak yeah. no matter what no you matter do in what. sport. Even if you hang it up at the top of the game, you will look back years later and say, ah, man, I should have done it again. Sure. But look at Michael Jordan. He became like a baseball player and yeah, a he golfer. Tried that, and, and then he, he came tried. back. And yes. I, I have a weak spot for Tom Brady. People probably might get mad at that and hate that, but I just have a weak <laughs> spot for the Patriots and Brady. And so watching that happen is interesting. Like watching this yeah. guy put up this fight, you know, and watching his passion. And you just know, like I said, I... It's just the biggest heartbreak of my life. Well, you know? think about so. it. You weren't quite in the same spotlight as the two guys we just mentioned. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, of course. <laughs> Imagine but, that pressure. Yeah, sure. But I, I think that that feeling of loving your sport and wanting the best yeah. out of you and, and the frustration, I just think it's so universal. I mean, was it all consuming for you? Or sure. did you have time for like, hey, I'm going to explore this relationship or this other new I, I, interest? I, I, I had or? a great relationship with a, a woman who's actually born and raised in Boulder named Vanessa. Crittenden and we had a uh, it was only off again and on again because I was such a wreck for like 10 years so Vanessa was oh a huge gosh. part of my life here in Vanessa Boulder. you're pretty yeah. awesome yeah oh no, she's <laughs> amazing um so I've I've been really lucky with with patient um uh relationships patient with me but uh yeah just all just so consumed by the sport it, uh, you know I found out that um I was much I did become a better climber when I stopped trying to to go to World Cups. I mean, I enjoyed it more and I became be- and I was better at it. You know. So st- still not any kind of champion, but but better at it and certainly enjoyed it more when I, I mean, had the when I had shaping and something else to do. Oh, that you know. That makes so much sense. I mean, when you stop focusing on the result and actually there's sure. a lot of 
a lot of people talk about this idea of like joy in the journey and you're mm-hmm. like, yeah, yeah, joy in the journey, whatever. But when you actually can figure out how that applies to you, then I do think it lifts some of the pressure or whatever expectations we're putting on ourselves. I, I think one, you know, again, being kind of left wing and in Boulder a long time, I have some some little understanding, not a serious one, but some little understanding of the principles of Buddhism. You couldn't, it's in the water here. So I do think that the, I think the Buddhists have it right. They have kind of an, there's kind of an, they really understand irony. There's sort of this essential irony sort of in the universe. If you, if you, if you really try for this one, you know, take money. If you try for money, it's going to be painful and you may not get there at the, you know, the moment you, you're doing something, you're working, let's say artwork is how I uh, relate to it. If you're making the artwork just to make the artwork, then the money probably comes faster. But you really have to release from, you can't play games with it, you can't pretend, right? Oh, and it's such a hard line in business too. Sure. I mean, that's sure. where that's where I would say I battle that concept more than anywhere because yeah. this is a capitalist pursuit in a you know i mean mm-hmm. we're doing this this is our living and unfortunately money has to be a part of our lives if you don't have it you sure you know i mean i guess your life just looks a different way but i choose to and and you do too choose sure. to live in boulder area and, yeah yeah it's not that it's sometimes no. tempting to move <laughs> oh, God, what I, every now and then i look at houses in st louis or something oh there's some mansions like, we could buy like three yeah, of them yeah, yeah, yeah. um so so here you are you know kind of going back to like you're not sure what's going on in your life yet. Mm. You're trying to figure it out. And at some point, things kind of got derailed. Yeah, well, right. So, okay, so briefly then uh, I worked for Straight Up and then that company kind of, it just kind of blew up. Chaz just, it just kind of blew up. Um, he just didn't handle his success at the time very well. And he, he was a natural marketing guy and he was focused on marketing and so he, he really kind of was maybe a bit too focused on marketing and didn't pay attention to the nuts and bolts of the company. I don't think he'd be insulted by that, uh, although he would understand better why it melted down. So straight up kind of ended in about 93 or so. I did about a year at a friend's advertising agency called uh, TDA, Thomas Design Associates, Uh who's a local kind of, well, an international kind of major advertising agency. So I was, I had friends there and I sort of spent a year uh, uh, drinking coffee and smoking weed and trying to think about funny ads that I was sometimes good at and probably sometimes terrible at it. I did a year at that, which was actually very valuable, just a year in an American advertising company and understanding sort of marketing and speaking to Americans about a product. Then started my own climbing hold company called eGrips, which is still around. We sold it a few years later. Um, was that the one that was in the North Boulder? Uh, I call it the slums of Boulder. Oh yeah, yeah, we were absolutely in the slums of Boulder. Yeah, uh, Ty Foos was my partner, and Ty, oh, yeah. Ty and I are both kind of minor characters in the climbing world. <laughs> and uh, so yeah, we were we were up there in a in a you know six hundred square foot warehouse, living at least two of us, often more in the warehouse. Oh yeah, in the warehouse and shaping the holds and pouring the plastic in the holds. So, uh, and what, what year was this? Oh, that was 94, five, six, okay. seven, some about like that, kind of a maybe a four or five year run, something like that. I, I just want to tell you when Skirt Sports got our first warehouse sure. space, it could have been yours. 
It, we were in. You were right there. We were in the slums of Boulder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For a, six months. So but many Boulder businesses. Were, it was like pot wasn't there. legal here, and every day at four, we'd be like, "Why does it smell so interesting oh, in here?" Oh yeah, yeah. And right, I mean, right. The the motorcycle folks next to yeah, us yeah, would yeah. spill gasoline, and we're like, "We're feeling sick today." And then yeah. of course we're behind the strip club, and so oh yeah, the only strip had, club yeah. in Boulder. Yeah, and, and we have the it's short crazy skirts. Boulder even has one. Uh, totally, I know it's so funny. So Is it still exists? I've heard that it's gone. Okay, I don't know. Well, we don't we don't frequent it now. No, but um, so I get where you were, and I get that whole like it was the only the the cheapest place you could find in the Boulder area. Oh, absolutely, probably still is our space. Oh, I can't think of. There's a major <laughs> bag company, major. Uh, they made like CD cases. They ended up being oh. this huge local company. Like, it wasn't I, like no Otterboxes in Fort Collins. No, no. But, but but so this was not the, like e bags. This was the '90s version oh, of that. Gosh. They ended up being okay. like a two hundred million dollar okay. company up oh, the road. They started in our space in oh, the my early gosh. '90s. Oh, that's so yeah, funny. it's great. Uh, so know. so yeah, you guys are like really living the entrepreneur absolutely startup and, life, and, and we were just so obsessed with our little climbing holes. We basically just made them for ourselves to climb on. And, we, <laughs> and you know, we were talking about money earlier. Really, it's always just been the drive to make money is really still. It still is this way. I just want to make more stuff. I just want to do more designs and get to make more toys. And so, you know to this day we spend everything we make back on on making new lines of holds and new walls and stuff so yeah so we were a couple stone kids and loved making holds and we got a pretty good reputation for making a certain style of very very holds that look like rock but were much more comfortable that's the thing in climbing uh climbers outside we'll cut our hands up and we'll deal with anything outside it doesn't matter but if you know, if the holds are sharp indoors, well, that's someone's fault. That's a, a whole right. shaper did that to you and they tend yeah, to get mad at us. So yeah, interesting. we make them comfortable. There's a certain level of comfort that's very important. So we, uh, Ty and I worked on that together. We had a great collaborative relationship in that we never clashed and we worked together on these shapes and we'd, we'd actually be sitting just like this across from each other, shaping these little lumps of plastic. And then we'd, we'd switch, we'd, spend half an hour and then shape them and then I'd kind of fix what I thought was wrong with his and he'd fix mine always super positive we were as close as you could be and uh that collaboration that's a that was a big deal for us both as a, us personally as designers it was a nothing but a positive collaboration for years which made us both get better and better and better and better at this you know um this again this goofy little trade um so at a certain point, though, we we were getting we were getting to the end of our twenties, and uh, I started to realize, you know, I could put all this sculpture. I was doing more and more intricate sculptural pieces, and you could only get about ten dollars for one of these climbing holds. And I realized, like, oh, I think if I do this in stone or bronze or something, I can make more money. And I sort I sort of decided to go back to fine art, um, and it, that worked really well basically that just took off i just had a, a this goofy little style of kind of highly contrasted lines that i would make in these stone I, i'd clean a piece of stone so it was very straight and clean and then i'd rip this organic pattern in it and the contrast seemed to it interested me and it seemed to be sort of universally appreciated or nearly or universally enough and um and because it was in stone it had a, it seemed like it required a certain price, right? And I mean, again, there's not, there's not that many people who want to, who, uh, it, it takes people with a certain amount of money lying around to think, oh yeah, I can 
put a giant piece of stone in the corner of my living room. Like that's not a normal right. No, thing. I get it. Yeah. yeah. So they were awesome. Uh, I, I <laughs> so how did you hook in? So I just de- force of will. You I, just I, said I'm, I'm going to make this happen. I'm going to st- I'm going to make money on art or starve. I basically just and Ty Ty went and, and built a company that built um, the full giant climbing walls out of concrete. So wow. if you're in an REI. And there's a big climbing wall that looks like a rock. Ty probably built that. Oh so my he, gosh! He, so is he still doing that? He didn't. It, that company didn't quite make it through the financial crisis. He oh. shuttered in like 2009 because yeah. he basically just got stuck with two or three giant contracts for REI walls. They canceled. It just, yeah. it's just it. They didn't yeah. quite make it. Nobody wanted, you know, a giant concrete climbing wall was not priority in 2008, 9, 10. Yeah, yeah, I get um, it. Yeah. So you guys kind of split at that time. Yeah, Had yeah. you already sold the company? No, I we 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 didn't do much with it, and then we eventually sold it to a local uh, climbing business called Trango that's been around for a really oh, long cool. time. They do yeah. gear, and you know locals mm-hmm. know that. So Trango picked it up and has run it ever since. And and Egrip still gives me a royalty. Egrip's was sending that's me so a royalty awesome. check in prison, which we'll get which we'll get to that part <gasps> oh of the story. My. Oh, this yeah. this is me, getting good. <laughs> me, me and the hip hop guys were getting royalty checks in prison. So. Oh my gosh! Um, oh, that's so, funny. So so basically, I made fine art. Yeah, and sold every piece I wanted. And, uh, you know, sold every piece. That, were you uh, making like, what kind of money were you making? I, people would hand me like five and $10,000 cash for these things. Then I discovered so from- cocaine at the same time. <laughs> Wow. And that was really bad timing. So you, oh my God. So instead of selling things for $10, you yeah. start selling them for five grand. Yeah. Now I, you I mean, got I, money in I, your pocket. You know, plenty for 500 to one and 2000. But yeah, I, I once left, was it 10,000 in fresh cash at the base of a rock climb and rifle for an afternoon and a beat up backpack because I forgot about it, you know? So I just, I, oh I had this weird God. period where, uh, yeah, I basically had never been around, uh, cocaine hard drugs so had you ever had money too no like God, don't no. you need no, money I didn't to get grow up. the drugs or? yeah 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 i didn't so, grow up with money i i i've until very recently lived a very irresponsible life that didn't have much money i just ended up with this funny period where yeah people i mean people pay a lot of money for a piece of rock and and you know we were talking about that as i was mentioning that essential um that sort of buddhist uh relationship to irony i was not doing it for the money i absolutely loved I, I i learned what at the end of high school i was drawing so much i was sort of selling artwork i was a pretty talented artistic kid or at least i spent a lot of time trying so i was selling portrait work and stuff and by the end of high school by the time i was about 18 i was really burnt out on that and i was doing it for money and for attention and all these other reasons and i just knew that and i just got i just fried myself on it and I don't know life without artwork. So that was a really kind of an end of a period. So from 18 to 28, I didn't think I'd make money. I didn't think I'd make a living in fine arts. So I you know, went climbing and did this other thing and I sort of stumbled back to this sculptural pursuit. And then, and so it took me 10 years to get my head straight, but I was really, really clear um, I, had a, I loved selling artwork. It didn't poison me at all. It didn't confuse me. I basically don't let the sales in my studio. I do the artwork for me. Um, I have this 51-49% rule. Like 51% has to be because I want to make this piece of art. And if you, I knew that if I ever stepped over that line, I'd be lost again. So by 28, I had a really good, healthy, at least relationship creatively to what I was doing, right? 
and and so I loved selling artwork because it didn't it didn't it didn't interrupt my creative process. They're two different jobs. You make what you what you want. Then if you're lucky, and I'm incredibly lucky that apparently other people liked what I liked, and so that great easy easy to sell. Well, and it's you know I think what everyone listening probably can understand already about you is that you're an all-in guy like you're an extreme guy and maybe you have some angst and you work through that along the way and you're super emotional and you get really passionate about (laughs) the things you do right yeah messy child yeah well and and so it's kind of cool though to be reaching this place of more clarity maybe yeah that was i had a little window of a really healthy really great and like i said then i just discovered cocaine uh How, how did you discover it uh, because it's bolder, and so I—I I don't know. So, I haven't discovered oh, it. Yeah, well, no, I mean, no. I'm, so, you know, I'm not going to. God discover bless it. you. No, no, no. You're good. You're <laughs> you're safe. Uh, I look. Uh, I shouldn't say because it's bolder. Because uh, you know, Boulder's kind of town that had a lot of money and a fair amount of young people quote partying. I love that term when it destroys Party. your life. We call it partying. <laughs> totally it's fantastic. Um, so it was really. If you could edit the film, it was really like I had this nice ha- townhouse full of collectible mid-century modern furniture and my sculpture, and everything was super <laughs> healthy and cool and this white white stuff was introduced and and so it was this normal party but at the end of the party i'm like hey what was that stuff does anybody have any more of that that was pretty cool i mean by monday i was you know that was friday night by monday i was an addict and so i that was the beginning of a 10-year wow. i just threw away 10 years it ended in prison how were you like were you, you were smoking pot were you were a big drinker before no then, no or in fact definitely not a drinker because of my dad um yeah, I, you know, I'd smoked a little bit of pot and eaten some mushrooms and ran around the woods again, like a, a lot of climbers and boulderific people do. So just that. Um, and, uh, and uh, again, a complicated, I mean, I've been off and on, um, antidepressants for, you know, a couple of decades, right. Since, since kind of Prozac came around in the nineties. Um, so I've tried a bunch of that different stuff. Um, and I'll be on for a couple of years and take a couple of years off. So that was about the extent of my relationship to drugs. And it was pretty controlled. And then it was just, I mean. Out of control. Oh, so, you, yeah. but what, like 10 years? Do you remember those 10 years? Oh, sure. Well. Like parts sure. of them? Or, I mean. <laughs> sure, sure. Did you just go on binges? What, what, yeah, what, yeah. How, I how mean, did it I, unravel? I, I mean, look, it's, uh, I bait you basically, um, you know, if you short circuit your dopamine, system it you know now of course i have a healthy dopamine system that relies on creativity again and as as a as an artist as a designer um your rewards come from designing something that you know is good you know is successful in all the work and so uh all you got to do to destroy everything about yourself is just short circuit that system so oh i'll just buy my dopamine from this guy in a bag um or my serotonin or whatever you want, you know, the, the, the little couple of chemicals that make you experience joy. So I just went down that road and look, and you mix, you mix a very decent amount of self-destructive and self-hate and just a messy, you know, self, um, you know, uh, just that self-destruction, self-hate, uh, self-esteem issues is what I'm trying to say. Pour, pour all that over somebody who does not have their footing, uh, under them like that and it's a mess so uh, yeah you know and you had money to buy the drugs now. yeah well for a little while and of course you know if you if you look at the tape then i stop working so i have to sell the sculpture that i have then i have to sell the collectible furniture 
then I have to like convince people I've given old pieces to like, Oh, I found a buyer for this sculpture. You know, it's just so sad. And look, I ended up a few years later, homeless, discovered meth was, was already smoking co- co- cocaine. So there's, I, I like I said, I, I, I don't know all the ways you can do great. God bless drug. You. <laughs> I, I, I love massive mistakes and I tend to completely explore all the mistakes you can make apparently. So, uh, but I, as a uh, chess said, you're good at learning from us. Uh, well, We're going to get there. This, yeah. This one took me a while, but yeah, I certainly embrace them. So yeah, I mean, I just, you know, you, if, if you're smoking some version of cocaine, that's even worse for the most part. If you got a needle in your arm, which was next, that's, that's about the end of it. Um, so yeah, so I ended up, uh, you know, just a couple of years go by and I basically ended up, I left Boulder because I didn't, I didn't want to share this, this part of my life with anybody. Um, there's no room for, for the community that I had here. Um, I didn't want climbers and people to see me. I mean, I was on a pretty serious, uh, I don't know, slow suicide mission. I don't know what it is. You're so so out of control, but I knew enough not to want anyone to see me do this. So I I went to Denver and I was homeless on the streets of Denver and a junkie. Like, Uh, like literally where did you sleep at nights? (laughs) I, it's, it is difficult. I've considered writing, about it but it does feel a little i feel a little bit like a hipster writing a book about drug use at this point i think it's been done a lot the point is it's hard to explain how desperate um uh, you know i didn't sleep in a bed for a year i would just pass out on the side of a building or you know i mean i absolutely nearly froze to death on the streets of denver several nights in around 1990 sorry uh 2006 7 uh would have to break into a house or not a like an abandoned house and broken anybody's real house or a that's actually office. a good thing I, I i tried to have a couple of i tried to do a couple Some things standards. right sort of yeah yeah oh my and friends God. of mine were stealing cars i didn't ever want to steal someone's car with all their pictures of their kids in it it wasn't for me um yeah, I, I mean, it literally would break into an office building to not freeze to death. Uh, I, I, you know, slept in. There's basically there's a there's an entire uh, drug system in this country and probably other other places. But there's in every city in America there's there's people. Well, so imagine you know at one point I had the townhouse where people were doing cocaine, and by the it started with wealthy, nice, well educated whatever you want to say people with their lives basically together a year later it that same townhouse is full of junkies and people smoking crack not the same people so that system while somebody loses everything in their life it's a place to sleep there is a constantly rotating system like that in this country so uh houses turn into people just destroy their lives on the big ones on cocaine meth and and heroin you know especially right and so after I was homeless, I would just end up in those people's houses who, who was destroying their life for a year, but they still had a house. Wow. Um, at a certain point, uh, I, a girlfriend of mine and I, uh, who was also using, you know, we were, I was a, a meth junkie, right? So you got to get something in your arm several times a day. And then, 
at, at that point, you don't know anybody with a job. There's only, every, everybody's a criminal. You have to be a criminal. Nobody can keep a job. Everybody's insane. So people are stealing cars and selling them, or there's the entire sex trade, or we were taught how to print credit cards. So that's what we did. And then we robbed stores to get laptops and diamond rings to trade to the dope man and did that for about two years and definitely went to prison, which is completely fair. Like we knew we were, we knew we were going to prison. So we, okay. How do you print a credit card? (laughs) No one listening. I will say it's unbelievably (laughs) simple. It is shockingly simple. Uh, and, and look, I, I also, I should say, I, I, it's, I mean, basically, you know, I was prosecuted with identity theft, which is a really, it's a terrible crime. I and mean, it's, it's something, it's a real scumbag kind of thing. And so, um, so were you, you were like taking people's credit cards or, or social security numbers or whatever yeah, and, and yeah, getting you, money. You, you can dig in dumpsters basically of, of, of office buildings and find lists of credit card numbers. And basically people can still do this. And so I do want to be really clear. I'm not, I, I, I laugh. I don't laugh about that part of it. I, I try to laugh a little bit about how crazy my life was and how out of control. Um, I'm obviously uh, not happy that we did that. Um, I still pay some restitution back. And, and um, I mean, I'm sure some people, you know, on a credit card bill, if you catch it, you can just dispute it and you don't pay it. I'm sure some people missed it. And I'm sure we we really harm some people. And, uh, you know, I can never make up for that. Well, but, um, let, me, let me just pause for a minute to say like, we're obviously not, you know, laughing about that. And, sure. And, yeah, no, of course And not. I don't want you to feel like um, I'm making light of anything, but these I, are harder conversations to have. And, you know, I think I, you just being open about it yeah. helps way more people than you ever think because we all go through tough stuff. So I, your story is just tougher than many. <laughs> it, it's it's a little wild. I, look, I basically think I'm so incredibly lucky to come out the other side of that much again it's it's impossible to describe how much drugs we were using and what our lives were like it was insane how are you like physically fit now I, you I, look like genetics, awesome like like y- you look like you came straight out of the gym and you're like what? robust and healthy and you're my age you're in your late 40s well, well you do you do lift weights in prison <laughs> okay so let's talk about prison how, yeah, yeah, how did yeah. you get busted Oh God, we were just out completely out of control and idiots. I mean, your IQ, if you don't sleep and you, you're banging meth or something, I mean, you're an idiot. I mean, our IQs are probably under a hundred, which is, uh, and live there, which is also, like I said, that's indicative of the fact that the credit card industry is not trying that hard. If, if wow. people like us could figure this out, I do, credit card industry should probably try a little harder to make this more difficult. <laughs> I, seriously. I, at one point I thought maybe I could do a catch me if you can kind of thing with my life. Like, look, I, I got to tell you guys, this is, this is how people are doing this stuff, but they didn't seem that interested. Okay. So, um, <laughs> they were like, forget it. You're still getting locked up. Yeah. So, and like I said, you don't know anybody who's not a criminal. So we were doing business with the white boy gangs, you know, with the, the <coughs> sons of silence and crips and, and whoever, and, and people who said they were gang members and probably weren't. It's just everyone's a mess. Everyone's a liar. And we were bumping up against uh, actually deadly serious people. And um, so my girlfriend and I would find ourselves in a, it sounds a bit crazy, but in a room where we're probably the only people who didn't kill somebody in the room. Really, like I said, at the end of society, we were sort of way, way out there. 
because not that many, no one else really understood how to how to do this well, and we did. So we sort of had this, I don't know, rock star status isn't isn't the right term, but people uh, had a criminal respect for us because we could go get laptops and diamond rings. So, but we were around very dangerous people, people I still wish I did I'd never met for sure. So we were there. I probably wasn't going to live for another six months, certainly not another year. I was just so sick. Like kidneys were probably shutting down. It was, it was, it was bad. And so, and, uh, oh, because we were, we were doing business with all these gang, different gang houses and different crack houses and shooting galleries and whatever, they're all being watched. There's indictments, there's federal and state indictments on all these gangs, all these groups. So we were, bebopping in and out of these houses. So of course we caught cases. So we had cases from, uh, we had the secret service uh, because we printed cards from uh, a German and a Canadian account, which is international and it's credit card and it's, and it's um, a form of, uh, you know, printing us currency. So we had, you know, FBI secret service, Colorado Bureau of investigation, multiple agencies around the Denver area, something like seven agencies that had open cases on us. So, and you didn't know that because they'd never been picked up. Oh, well, that yeah. Here's a <laughs> You're funny thing. You're laughing about this well, part. <laughs> I'm laughing about this part because nobody nobody knows this stuff. We would get pulled over in a stolen car without driver's licenses with warrants, but small warrants for you know whatever little uh, small crimes or shoplifting or whatever. We'd have open open warrants on. We get pulled over and the cops would go, "Well, have a good day." What? Because there's such big cases on you. So the last thing they they oh. do is pick you up for all of these. The little stuff. Yeah, yeah. Oh so, my gosh. So when and I, you had no idea. Well, we knew you that were like, was bad. we're really lucky. No, no, yeah, no. Knew. We knew. knew. I, we I mean we were I was living a I was living a junkie criminal life. So I was learning how to be a criminal, learning that world. So we knew if a county like um Jefferson County, who's pretty into Jefferson County, will arrest a grandmother if she doesn't pay a dog ticket. Hundred <laughs> percent, they love locking people up. And those guys were letting you drive away in a stolen car. We were, can I swear? Oh, sure. We were <laughs> fucked. So I knew we were going to prison. And basically, I got you know people locked up. Say you get rescued, not arrested. And so that was that was me. I got rescued. Um, so. As soon I I ended up getting arrested, and the cases just kind of kind of just got thrown at us. And as soon as I, you know, I hadn't been not high for years at this point. Every day high for years, you know, extremely high. Really so, quick, I yeah. have to pause. Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned a girlfriend quite a few times. Like, were you both picked up together and then you never yeah, saw her again? Yeah. Or? No, I look. We're still friends to this day. Oh, wow. She's she's straight. We have different lives, but uh, I still love her. Wow. She's great. Wow. Uh, we went through a lot together. Um, uh, I was looking at eight to twenty-four years, and my lawyer came Whoa. in and said, "You're gonna get twelve or fifteen years. Oh this is a god. serious judge." Oh so, my god! And that, sure, like, well, okay. And well, how, when was this? This was two thousand nine. Wow. Okay. Um, and I, I got, I got really lucky. I get, I uh, Fran hired, put a couple, put a thousand bucks or something down on a great attorney who had just quit the prosecutor's office a year before. So his old golfing buddy was my prosecutor. Your other girlfriend. Uh, no, no, sorry. Sorry. Fran, my mom. Oh, your mom. Yeah. Is yeah, Fran. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. uh, basically I got lucky. I was very contrite and, and, um, and I, 
as I said, I, I learned a lot of things about a criminal life and the legal system. And one of them is, good Lord, there are not a lot of people who are well-spoken, contrite, polite, and well-dressed in the legal system. So I went to court 21 times in multiple counties over a year, and I would watch people come in in their Slayer t-shirt and a, you know, fuck the police baseball hat mm-hmm. and and say, yeah, no to the judge. And I was absolutely like, yes, sir, no, sir. And I'm terribly sorry I did this. And absolutely, I want to make this right and I'll pay back whatever, you know, whatever needs to be paid back. Um, Basically, after about 10 days of being arrested, I sobered up enough that I could read a book and then do some pull-ups. And I loved it. I just love being, I, I could not get the needle out of my arm. So unfortunately, that's my one of my big regrets is I don't know how to tell how to counsel anybody else how to actually stop. I do. I have a really great relationship with sobriety now, and I embraced it when I got a shot at it. But I never to this day, I'm not the one who chose to stop. I just couldn't make I just couldn't seem to do it. And, and you were like, I've heard that prison is not necessarily a place people can stay clean. Like, no, uh, you, you definitely have the option to keep getting high on pills. And it's a lot of work. Although to be fair, being a junkie and a criminal is the most work I've ever done in my life. It's insane amount of work. Wow. This is terrible. It's an like, absolute I'm, nightmare. I'm just like following the purpose of your life. You know, like that you was, find this purpose in, in your art and your craft. Sure. And then you find purpose through like getting drugs every day. And then all of a sudden sure. they're taken Super from focused. You. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you're good at it and you're an extremist. You right. Know? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. And so was it, do you remember when you got clean? Like how hard was that in prison? Uh, effortless. Really? Be, yeah. Because I was really psyched. I couldn't stop and I wanted to stop. And I've actually, you know, one of the little bits of insight from my world of understanding addicts and being friends with addicts, the people I know that have stayed clean that, that got clean. And I noticed this even back when people were dropping out of the scene and they never came back. The ones who hated it for a year or more that, I mean, again, we were surrounded by people with, we were all sticking needles in our arm multiple times a day. And the ones who just hated it for a year or more, several years, and then finally somehow got clean. They, a lot of those people, it's, it stuck because you, you know, I, on addiction, you know, there's there's the disease model. This is my relationship to that way of understanding it. I my mom had cancer, and uh, uh, and plenty of people. We we've, we lost a, a good friend at Kilter a few years ago. I, for me, I could never in this life claim that what I did to myself and acting like a an absolute two year old as an adult could be labeled as a disease for me. What I do believe is that the reason why people reach for that word is because you feel so out of control, right? It feels, and that that loop of self-hate, like I can't believe I'm still doing this, what am I doing, how can I still be doing this? And frankly, I, I this is a suicide level of self-hate. What is, the, what is something that's gonna make this pain stop? Oh, I know reach for that or in my case i kept reaching for harder drugs right and harder ways to from snorting cocaine to smoking to injecting there's this clear path that i kept having to up the ante of numbing myself from that unbelievable self-hate and by the time you've 
you've dropped a life, a full life of being in a climbing world and and having a sculpting career and everything to being 100% homeless in Denver. And when the sun's going down and it's winter on the streets of an American city and you are homeless, that is a very special kind of terror and pain and self. It's that's an interesting place. So, so the only thing that will satisfy that is a shot of one of the most powerful drugs you know known to man that dumps all of the all of those brain chemicals back in, and you can go numb and check out for the next twelve hours, and you do it again. And so. Watching yourself in that cycle, of course that feels like a disease. It is so out of control and so painful and such a, a sharp expression of self-hate and depression and, and just that, of self-destruction. It's such an incredible um, expression of self-destruction. So I understand why people think it's a disease. For me, I find it healthier to think of it as, self, uh, as behavior. 1000% my fault, solely my fault that was so out of control. It felt like a disease. Wow. Did you, um, well, let me, I don't know if you know this about me, but I am 12 years sober. I, I we talked a little bit a little about bit. it. Yeah. And, um, and for me, it was, it was always alcohol. Sure. Just not being able to drink the same way as everybody else. As everybody else, right? Oh, I think this is a little different for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. sure. And sure. then, you know, at the end of the day, I, I've actually had a, an awesome guy on mm. the podcast. You should know him. His name's Scott Strode. Yeah, I know the name. Is he, is he Phoenix? He's Phoenix. Yeah, sure, sure. And I talked to him early on. He was just starting Phoenix, and I met with him. I don't even know why I met with him. Sure. But I think I was intrigued by him because I knew I had a sure. problem. And, uh, oh, and, early on. So, yeah. right. So you, you met him when you still had, oh yeah. When I was still, still struggling with this. And, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. And, and I don't, you know, for me it was, you'd take a year off and mm-hmm. you'd be like, okay, now I can start just like a normal person. Yeah. Now I'm fixed. <laughs> but that you had to cycle through that a couple yeah, times. But then it's like, I can't really maintain this. Yeah, but yeah, you yeah. know, I talked sure. to him about like, when do you know if you have a problem? And he right. said his, his definition was if you're hurting yourself or people who love you, sure. then that is probably one of your sure. biggest signs. Sure. So using despite consequences totally. is one of my favorite. Yeah. Right. I think and, that's a very clear definition. Well, and I think it's interesting because a lot of people, they find like AA sure. or NA or, you know, some kind of organized life, group life or Phoenix. Yeah. yeah. Life, life-saving groups. And, you know, I never did that. I didn't find those communities. Oh, that's and interesting. So, I, I was curious about that. Yeah. Yeah. thinking about you last couple of days. I, oh, was, really? I was wondering about yeah. that. Yeah, cool. What we're talking about. Yeah. Um, but people do ask me. They're coming into town. They'll say, hey, sure. do you know where the AA meetings are? And, and then I was like, I should probably find out so I could tell them. At right, because right, right, you you're know? open about this too. Yeah. And so, of course, they would ask you. And you're like, uh, yeah. actually, I, I don't. don't know. And then I feel yeah. like kind of like, am I a poser? Because like, should I be going to AA meetings? That, that's, I think that's really interesting. I'm curious too. Like you were in prison. Did you have access to those kinds of things? You did like, how did your process work? Right. So I, uh, I'm glad we we're talking about this. I was hoping we would. I, I'm, I, I want to actually hear about your relationship to that too. Um, it's, so for me, I don't do meetings. I've done a few, uh, some of the greatest comedy stories and best, best lines you'll ever hear about addiction come from meetings. I, I suggest anybody who's struggling at least catch some meetings because they will give you some great phrases. Um, you know, I, we, there's anybody who has any relationship to them. I've heard some of these phrases, but like one of them is, 
um, you know, uh, meetings will, will ruin drinking for you. You know, once you have that knowledge, it'll just kind of ruin it for you. I mean, there's, wasn't that the point? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, exactly. That, that's exactly yeah, that's right. Simple. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's just so much. I, I did a meeting in Dallas once, which was, uh, you know, wealthy Dallas socialite, you know, um, wife, a uh, couple of lawyers, pretty clearly a, a pimp and hooker, but in a relationship, you know, sort of uh, just the most colorful group. It was awesome. Um, for, so I've done some meetings. Uh, for me, it it does not click with me. I don't, for me, the way I think about it is I, I'm back to work and I built this company uh, and with partners and I just, I think of it as I try to keep, I keep my life filled up with a, with doing this other thing, with this other project. And I, I guess that sounds like your solution too. We, we have these companies and we keep ourselves filled up with this. And so for me, if I keep it filled up with this positive spiral, there is no room for the negative one. Um, and that's how I deal with it. One of my very close, one of my using buddies, one of my guys right there with me, and we have some hilarious stories that I don't think I can tell, but <laughs> maybe one day. Uh, he's, <laughs> yeah, he's a really successful real estate guy with his own company now. And we were, again, so fucked on the street, homeless. <laughs> and he oh he does meetings. He, he's been sober a few years ahead of me. Uh, he got out and was kind of begging me to get out and I just couldn't listen. Um, uh, we still communicate all the time. I'm so proud of him. And he meetings are a big part of his life. Yeah. And he is, I, I again, very successful. It's so great to see someone who was, I, I we were so far out of the bounds of normal society. We were such trash. We just destroyed our lives and and he's, he's great. And so, wow. and, and he does it through meetings and I don't, you know, he's I more successful than me. Oh, <laughs> yeah but what's success anyway mm. um but no i get it like i do think there's also an kind of almost like this sorority fraternity brotherhood sisterhood thing you know sure. it's it's definitely a community and there's and i have your back kind of absolutely mentality it and, works for them yeah i mean know? i definitely didn't exp- you know i've never i've never actually been to a meeting oh no, yeah not at all no. so you missed some of the comedy lines i did i yeah, should yeah, probably no, go but hey i may have to go sometime i may find like you just sure. mentioned as long as you keep yourself filled with these positive yeah. things but shit happens like you don't know sure. tomorrow something could happen to jackie or your body or your well, company or the things that are keeping you positive well, so I, I think we must we must both share uh, a very strong deep grain of humbleness right because we both watched ourselves try to quit and been backslide so we've watched ourselves do this thing that we didn't really want to do and i can't you know there, there's a I cannot forget that about myself. You know, there's a real, there's a real monster of out of control childishness that scares me. So I, I think that that keeps you humble knowing that, yeah. that, that we, as I said, we watched ourselves make these mistakes and we knew better. Um, and so uh, that, that and the, and for me personally coming through prison, um, yes, yeah, so let's, let's talk about prison. Sure. Sure. Like, what yeah, is yeah. it like? What's it like? Yeah. 
Um, I, I've actually, I've had um, a woman on the show who, yeah. her name's Kara Burns. She's awesome. She's a good friend of mine. Um, she was a meth addict. She got busted for dealing drugs across Classic. state lines. Oh, Classic. yeah, that'll do it. That'll do it. <laughs> she got clean in jail. Yeah, sure. She came out. Sure. And um, I've, I've had her on the show. Great. And I didn't actually ask her, like, what was prison like? Was it like the TV shows? Yeah. Like, uh, you know, what? Uh, yeah, it's funny. I haven't watched Orange is the New Black. I, I, I think <laughs> women's prison funny. and men's prison is is somewhat different. We definitely fight a little more, I think, in men's prison. Um, so, yeah, prison. Uh, first of all, I didn't go to a max. I went to a high medium, and I went in 2000. Uh, I, did, I did a year in counties and a year in real prisons. I was locked up for two years. Um, so you only got two years when they said you were going to get. I, I did two on five. I got a five or a six year. I can't remember now. I got maybe a six year sentence and I did. I think I got a five year sentence and I did two of them because it's not. If you do, if you, if you do federal, maybe Kara had federal. If she crossed state mm-hmm. lines. So yeah. if she did fed time, she would have done 85% of her time or something like that. You do a lot of it. The feds don't play around, but the state lets you do about half of it. Okay. And then if, if you're at the, if you're within something like nine months at the end of your sentence, they can kick you to a halfway house. So you kind of add that up. So instead of doing, you know, three years on six, it basically came out to doing about two. Um, uh, and I went to a high medium, which was, is real prison but uh not the not the scariest place i have i've got some good friends i have one friend who just uh he's back in he cannot seem to stay clean he just loves that crack rock he's a brilliant guy and it's really sad and wild to watch somebody who he still can't get a handle of it so he's back in and he goes to the real he goes to sterling and he goes to some pretty heavy units and um he, he has to fight a lot and uh um Prison. Prison is, uh, I've used so many different analogies and ways to think about it. There's a climb at the edge of Boulder called the third flat iron, right? I mean, everybody in Boulder yeah. looks up at these rocks. Yeah. Well, the, the, the flat irons are actually pretty big. The third flat iron is actually about a thousand feet. It's ticked, it's kicked back pretty, uh, pretty substantially. So it's climbing, but we call it slab climbing. So it's a lot of people could do it. Um, uh, so many healthy people could could run up it. If you're not used to climbing, you'd want to put a rope on. But a lot of climbers will kind of run up it without a rope. And it's not so bad. It's not like what Alex Honnold does at all. It's the same thing. It's soloing, but it's much, much easier. So a lot more people can do it basically safely. If you screw up, you're dead. But it's not so bad. You just can't screw up. So, so my version of prison was not so bad, but you cannot make a mistake. So my, my friend who's in and out, he talks about every time he comes out, his Kung, his mental Kung Fu is super high because, um, you have to, you have a lot of discipline, a lot of discipline. Prison's a very polite place. You don't reach across the corner of some dude's plate. You don't, you don't not hold the door for somebody. Uh, you don't drop it in their face. You don't do any, you're very polite. If you're too polite, that's a problem. If you hold the door for too long for some guy, that's a problem. It's basically full of giant children. Uh, uh, there's a bunch, there's evil geniuses, not many. There's, have you ever wondered where a lot of the population with an IQ from about 75 to 90 is? Prison. 
Yeah, but then you have people at the highest IQ range, like yes. your friend you just mentioned, and maybe you. There's, I actually thought one out of ten would be like me, sort of self-destructive, depressed guys with with problems who wanted to, who wanted to do pull-ups and read Shakespeare when they're in there. It wasn't quite one out of ten. <laughs> a little more one out of fifty. Um, so yeah, if you um, you're in a group of guys. If a fight jumps off or something, you can't react. You have to control your face because there's 10, 20, 50 people who can see your face. They'll read you, the, the dangerous ones in the crowd, which is, which is one out of 10, um, will read your face. And even the, even the guys with a low, they may have a low IQ in some ways, or they may be semi-illiterate or certainly not well-educated, but they might be incredibly perceptive when it comes to humans so if a fight jumps off and you look scared that's a problem if you look a bit too excited like i've got a pretty good temper if i let myself get a little too involved in that sort of you know that sort of embracing violence well then that means you're good to go that means oh you cool this guy's ready to fight let's go it's it's a it's a little wild so you basically you even like i wasn't this guy I, w- I certainly didn't laugh and uh, wasn't as friendly as I, as you, you know, you know me as a pretty friendly guy. That's not who you should be in there. Um, so I had to be a different person, I had to be a much harder person. Um, I had to be a person that I didn't want. I, you know, I don't want to be that person. Um, but you have to be. It's not a, it's not a joke or a game. So, um, as I said, I wasn't in the most dangerous place. So. Uh, it, it could have been, it could have been worse, but, um, yeah, I, and I still have a thing. I'll still watch a prison documentary or like a prison movie. I sort of can't help it. I'll still watch. And some of those I'm like, oh yeah, yeah. That, that, that scene on the prison bus is for real. Like that's a vibe. I mean, we, you know, we, we, you transport, you're always locked up and you're transporting in manacles and, and cuffs and stuff. Like I sat next to a kid who was going back to a, a, a harder facility than I was going to. So he spent a couple hours on the bus working piece working free a piece of metal from the seat in front of us so he could get that fold that up stick it in his ass and take it inside as a piece because his yard was serious enough that he needed a piece and this was colorado yard wow. in 2010 wow colorado is there's not a full-on race war going on in the prison and which was great because i hate i i grew up in sort of the edge of downtown atlanta i i don't i've never bonded but never understood racism it's i've always hated it so uh if we if i was in california or maybe idaho or texas there's there's plenty of states where i you couldn't have a black friend inside forget it like that's not a thing your own you you know the white the wood pile they call it the white boys would kill you or or ruin your life uh and him uh, in my prison my best friend was black it was great there's a guy of another father figure named hutch he was uh, about 10 years older than me we washed dishes every day. We worked really hard in the in the kitchen, and so we could forget you're in prison. You're just kind of in a kitchen, and we had um, we had some a couple of great guards who treated us like hardworking humans. There's a lot of guards who don't treat you like a human, and that's rough. But you you deal with that, and you learn who those guys are. Uh, we had a couple of people that were just normal. We worked our ass off, and then we trained. We lifted weights hard on the pile hutch was he he died a couple years ago which breaks my heart still um (laughs) hutch was the uh, smartest trainer i've probably ever worked with and he taught himself uh he was just a 
Denver gangster and he'd been out of, in and out of prison for 15 years. Um, and he taught himself anatomy and uh, exercise physiology and he was just brilliant and I loved him. And But, but I, we could be friends, we openly friends and work hard together. And, and so uh, that was a, a, a high point for me in, in the middle of that place. That's, and that's what you need to survive. You need to have some kind of basic human connection yeah. Do you want some of my water? I, I mean, it's hard stuff too. Like, was he out when he passed away? He was, thank God. I'm so glad you asked that. I should have said that. Yes, he was. That's good. Which is great. Um, yeah, God. I, I, if I ever had my boy, I'm going to name him Hutch for sure. Oh, and um, well, we can get there. Are you going to yeah. have kids? <laughs> uh, no, I, after, after this tale of, of poor judgment, I'm still not. Yeah, not yet. Maybe. Yeah, well, maybe. You're, you know. Not yet. Oh man. Okay. So, so let's just say at some point here you got out. Yeah. So, uh, so I kicked out to a halfway house and I came back. I, I had, as I said, I'd removed myself from the climbing world. And, uh, again, I'm, I'm a very minor figure in our little sport. And so, uh, I'm sure there was uh, a fair amount of, anyone who knew me or heard about me was wondering, what happened to this guy um like a 10 to 12 year absence <laughs> yeah well, yeah i mean really missing from 2005 or 6 to to, to when they heard i was locked up yeah. and, and so i started I, I wrote a couple of letters and um andrew clinkenbeard who worked at the spot who's a good friend and then Dan Howley, yeah. who owned the spot. They, I sort of started with Andrew, and he told Dan where I was. And so I managed to write letters to these guys. And it, it, it there's a lot of really old-fashioned stuff about prison, and one of them is letters. It's really a big deal to to be able to write a letter and get a letter there. Um, and so I wrote letters to those guys. And, and uh, uh, a local kind of climbing legend named Peter Beal, um, came and visited me and wanted, before I went to the real prison, I was in Jeffco and he came and visited me just, he wanted to see how I was doing if I was really sober. Um, and so he, that was, that was really meaningful for him to come visit me. So a, basically, uh, a, a fair amount of people let me back in their life. There's some people in Boulder that never have. I was, uh, I've had a one particular really close friend and he's just never, forgiven me for that and that's completely understandable i mean it's a bummer I, you know i miss him but also not my place to yeah be, no, be mad at that i'm like yep no, totally it just, fair it hurts sure. though i mean it hurts yeah i i try to stay very honest about what i can have empathy for and what i can't i don't actually know what it's like to watch somebody you care about try that hard to destroy themselves i've never seen anybody that i care about be that dramatic and, and nuts so I don't know what that particular kind of pain is so I'd, I'm the last person who can be mad at that I don't know what that's like so there's a few I think there's plenty of people in Boulder in my again my little world of the climbing industry that are that are good on me they're like oh, that's way too out there for me I'm good on that guy <laughs> I get totally understandable oh I don't think for the, except for that one guy we, we don't miss each oh other my God, I, this I, is... the rest of us don't miss each other I mean, it's just, it's hard because I'm sitting here across from you and you are just, you're robust and you have a light about you and, you know, everybody you walk by on the street has a story. Nobody sure. would guess that, nobody right. would guess that this <laughs> right. was your story. Right. Yeah. And well, that's, you know, uh, again, like I don't, I, I, 
I try to find the humor in this stuff or talk about it in a way that is maybe entertaining or so I try to find the entertainment in it, but I, I basically feel uh, kind of responsible that um, I should be able, if I'm this lucky, if you can come through that level of addiction and self-destruction and poor judgment and everything else, if I can come through that and put together what for me is a very pleasant life and I, I, I'm just the luckiest guy I know, but I think I'm beholden to that luck um, to be able to just to talk, to speak about it in a way that, that maybe encourages anybody who, cause I'm not the only, I'm not the first or the last, right? There's other people that are going to try this hard to destroy themselves. And if maybe in the back of their head, they can go, Oh, there's that guy. And God, he was such an idiot. He's so <laughs> unbelievably out of control. And then he put his life back together. That that's gotta be value, right? There is value. And, um, and you need that. to kind of precursor that with like, there's this guy and he's so incredibly talented and has everything going for him. And then it fell apart, but then he came back. Right. And, and so when life is like really pushing you down, you know, I mean, yeah, you, you can, you can come back. Yeah. I, I think I remember I, when I was getting sober, I remember I thought, ah, oh God, what, a, what I'd like to do a weird PSA commercial for the Denver area <laughs> where, where I go around and I go, Hey, check out this dumpster. I super nearly died right here behind this dumpster in a snowbank, like for real. And, uh, I broke a needle off of my arm over here and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and then, and now this, and now I'm fine. Uh, basically, you know? Um, so yeah, I think I, especially at this age, I I just want to make sure that people understand that they, because I didn't go, you know, I was 30, 31 when this started, right. I was in prison at at 40 years old. So, you know, maybe that's a touch unusual. And most people aren't that much of an idiot when they're 30, 31, like that's really next level self-destruction at a late time in the game. So if somebody else has find themselves in their forties and, and I, I worry that people think there's no way I can turn a life around at 40. I, I worry about that person because you absolutely can. So I think that's my responsibility. If I'm going to get some good out of this outrageous behavior, then I think that, that that's, <laughs> that's probably the most important message. Oh, I love it. And I agree. It is a very important message that there's no age limit Yeah, to turning sure. it around, yeah, making right? those changes. Yeah. Um, well, today, you know, you do have a thriving business. You're you're driven. You have purpose. You're in a great relationship. You just bought some land in Longmont. Yeah, yeah, we, yeah, Jackie and I. So, so uh, Jackie Huffley is my life partner and business partner at Kilter, and we we're again super lucky. We uh, I I don't think that many couples. I, not everybody can kind of work together and get along together. We get along great. We rarely argue um she mostly because she uh has an amazing sort of next level level of patience uh she's a very patient person with me so uh but yeah we have a little company together and it's uh it's it's a yeah we're really lucky it's a real joy um again i'm not i'm an atheist but i do believe you better be thankful for this this level of luck this is an unusual level of luck and i try to stay very humble and thankful about that so yeah we have our the climbing company's doing great we're i we think we're the largest climbing hold company in the states and trying to be the largest in the world and um uh there's i'm super lucky in that there's uh 
on paper, it doesn't make sense that there would still be these goofy little, there'd still be anything left to do with climbing holds. Like why would, they're just lumps. Why a, a plastic, why would they still be interesting? Why could you still add something? But just today and tomorrow and the next day, I've got ideas that haven't quite, you know, just haven't quite done it this way or that way. And so I'm still, I still feel really driven to do that work. And so I don't know, that's about as lucky as it gets. I mean, I, I sense too, like, part of this journey is about acceptance and um, embracing where you are. Sure. And, you know, at the beginning we talked about as an athlete, like you're just, there's always heartbreak and you're never quite as good sure. as you want to be or sure. this or that. And what I'm hearing from you today is like, maybe it comes with maturity and all the experience and all the shit you've been through. Sure. It's just like, yeah, I still like it. I mean, keep going. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, that's, that, you know, I was talking about the humbleness uh, that we get from being in recovery or have recovered or come through something that keeps you humble in a way. Um, there, I have a wellspring. I have this, this anti take for take stuff for granted. I've got this, this history in prison. I can think if I, if I really want to take something for granted, want to take my life for granted, I sort of can just think, well, I'm not in a, a six by 10 cell, you know? Um, you know, be, yeah, being locked up and in that situation and, and for a long time, you, you know, I remember the first time I heard music cause I was in a, in a lockdown pod, you know, you get thrown in the hole, you get caught fighting and you get thrown in the hole and whatever, and you, you don't have much to eat and you don't, you, you can't see the sky for a couple of months or you can't hear music or something. So I have these, I remember the first time I saw a tree cause I transported in a van and it was, I was taken out of a lock, basically a lockdown unit for after months and you could see a tree. So that sounds incredibly trivial. And again, I would, you know, I'm not Papillon. I wasn't eating roaches for six years in a dark <laughs> hole, but uh, you know, lockdown unit is a lockdown unit. So uh, I do have these these memories of the first time I heard a song after months and months of not hearing music, which months of not hearing music is a bit unusual. And I, I care a lot about music. So, um, well, yeah. yeah, we started by talking about your speakers, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the size of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I have like yeah, like a seven or eight foot tall speaker stack that I love. Um, so yeah, the I do have this. Um, it's a powerful sort of set of memories that I can kind of play those tapes. And if something's bad, I mean, again, I'm, I get grumpy and ill-tempered all the time. And so I should use this tool more often, but I do have this tool that I can bring up sometimes if I can take a couple of breaths and, and just think, Hey man, you're a alive and be not locked up in a unit. And you know, yeah. So look at the tree. Yeah. Check yeah, out yeah, the yeah, tree. yeah. 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 There's trees everywhere. You know, we've been going for a long time. Yeah. I bet you don't know how long we've been going. I, I can talk, so... No, it's been an hour and a half. Oh, yeah, it's yeah. It's been amazing. Sure, sure. And we're going to wrap it here, sure. but before we do, I I just want to ask you, like, do you think about the future? What What's next for you? Or, I, mean, I, yeah, yeah. I mean, I sort of obsessively, as a designer, I sort of obsessively think about the future, right? And just trying to design... Like what products do we release next? What 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 do I prioritize? What's the coolest thing I can make? What's the next thing in line that I can make to make indoor climbing more interesting? Um, and and also, of course, some business. You know, be, designing a business, designing a piece of art, it's all the same stuff. If you're creating something, I swear it is the exact. It, again, it's the same state. You're pulling from the same parts of your brain. 
if, if you're just in charge of a division of a company, but you have creative license to control that division, it's the same thing as, you know, it's from the same place as running your own company. They're just slightly different. So, uh, yes, I think about the future and what we should do next with the company. Where, can, where do we expand? What do we focus on? Um, in, in that way, I think about the future a lot. I'm not, uh, being in a, I, as I said, I've been very lucky with relationships and just had great women in my life several times, a few times. So but being in a relationship that's where I'm more stable and uh, with Jackie is a bit unusual. And so I'm still getting used to that in a great way. So, uh, and just, again, obviously someone, obviously I've got a quite a healthy self-destructive streak and that that's just not my focus anymore. So I'm still trying to adapt to that. Yeah, it's a lifelong. To be okay with that. And and that might last forever. Yeah, I think I think you'll always I'll always kind of want to self-destruct. <laughs> oh, maybe I should self-destruct. It's a hobby. Uh, I just don't embrace it and Jackie keeps me in line and so uh so that in thinking about the future I'm sort of uh like wow, that's kind of wild. Like you could be happy for a few years in a row. Well, and I just want to say too, like you've mentioned a few times that you've felt like you've been lucky and lucky in relationships Super and stuff. Lucky. But I honestly, like, I don't, I don't necessarily think that would be luck. I think there's something about you that people see and that, um, they see there's good and they want to be there for you and they want to help you. And, and maybe they're your partner crime and, you know, <laughs> right, but, right. but, um, sure, sure. but you know, we do end up attracting, I think, what we deserve and you've had people who've been good. And so I think that's a really, I don't know, a positive thing for sure. you. And in the future, if you ever have those times when that desire to self-destruct becomes strong, you got to lean mm. on those people. Yeah. I, yeah, that's, I'm learning, I'm learning to do that. Um, yeah. That's awesome. Yep. Well, thank you so much. For, I've got a bunch of stuff I want to ask you. They'll turn the mics off and I'm going to ask you a bunch of stuff. <laughs> oh my gosh, it's so cool. Then we'll reload and go pee and get right, some more right. water. Sure, sure. Because yeah. <laughs> we're athletes and we got to hydrate. Absolutely. Um, well, before we officially wrap here, yeah. I'm going to ask you the question I ask every sure. guest who comes on the show. And here we go. If you could leave our listeners with one final piece of advice your best nugget to help them run their worlds in a bigger and better way, what would it be? Oh, Lord. Boy, I'm, gonna have a, I'm just going to have a hard time answering that. I mean, I, I can go back to a couple of things that I've mentioned that I think are really big themes, and one is that, that kind of flow state that we're all pursuing a flow state. From, from when we're, especially if you're an athlete, then you get it in your sport. You're looking for that in your job too. Um, probably when people are the most frustrated in their jobs is when they just, oh, they can't find, they can't get to that state in their job. And that's, I'll bet that's why people hate their jobs more than anything else is that. So uh, the power of, the, of, of, you know, if, if you get into a flow state, then uh, that means you're just focused on what you're doing. And that's probably a version of creation. And if you you stay focused on that and not, can I get money from this creation? That You focus on that, your flow state's interrupted. So if you focus on the act of creation and what you really believe in, then I think success, luck, other people, money, whatever. It's not guaranteed to come, but it's a lot more likely. Um, it seems to come to people if they can just stay focused on on creating 
and uh, creating what's important, and uh, and then other things that you probably want may come to you. I I guess I guess that. Oh, I love that. Stay focused on creating what's important. First, we got to yeah. figure out what's important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, that's, <laughs> I mean, that's not easy for everybody, but yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, you, you know, it, that's. I guess that's a little version of follow your passion. But I do. I love how I you think put it's it. Important. Oh, I love it. It's been so awesome. This is the best interview. I appreciate you oh, so thank much. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm yeah, so yeah. glad that you're renting. Our yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah we, ever since we met you, we're like, oh, that's great. It's been very, very <laughs> fortuitous. All right, and everybody listening, you are going to be following Kilter Grips. I couldn't find a personal account for you. Do you have one? Oh, uh, I got a Facebook thing, but I try to. I've been getting a little too grumpy on yeah, social media. Don't, don't follow him. Yeah, I'm just follow his to, business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we're, cool. we, are, we have a little Instagram Kilter Grips for sure, yeah. and that's that's yeah, us. We just shoot videos of us talking yeah. about the holds. That's it's very much us. Yeah. Well, you're so. gonna you can get a sense for Ian, you know, visually. If you follow him there. Awesome. Well, it's been fun. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. All right. I am back. I don't know about you, but I am definitely in a flow state having had this incredible conversation with Ian. I love his final message. If we can just focus on the creation, the creation of good things, positive things in this life, and get rid of any kind of attachment to a result, we will be doing the right thing. Our life will be on the right path. We will be moving forward in a positive direction. So let's get out there and create everybody. And if you want to connect with Ian, if you want more Ian Powell, uh, check out Kilter Grips on Instagram. You can reach out to him through his company. You can reach out to me and I can connect you with him Um, he's an awesome person. He's a brilliant man. And I'm just so grateful that he is with us. Uh, despite all of his best laid plans to not be with us, he is still here with us. And I know he has more creating to do. All right, everybody. What a way to start the new year. You know what time it is. It's time to get out there and run this world. Have a great workout and I'll see you next week.